0: Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we are continuing our podcast series on archetypes, uh, thinking about Christmas and the archetypal significance of Mary. Last podcast, we talked about uh, what podcasts are, or what archetypes are. And archetypes are patterns for understanding the world. Uh, We need patterns because the world is, is far too confusing to make sense of, um, just through our five senses our five senses pick up patterns and then we can live out the story that we have heard about how the world is supposed to work and for this reason archetypes are very very important because they give us a sense of direction stories have always been seen for most of history as um the most important thing um you know, either they're part of religion, and usually it was part of religion. And these are the fundamental stories about our gods or about our god. Um, and the most important thing you can know is to know the stories right. And um, or else, uh, in Greek times, uh, with the coming of philosophy and this kind of a bifurcation between f- philosophical thinking and religious thinking, the stories were still the most. Im- the stories were still central. The philosophers used, you know, the, the the Iliad and the Odyssey. You had to memorize the stories in ancient Greece so that you could understand philosophies, so you could understand life, so you could understand everything. Um, so good stories are imperative for a good society because, or well, for a good life that builds good societies, you need to know the stories well. Um... So those are the three points I have. Patterns, they are (laughs) archetypes. Archetypes are patterns for understanding the world. They are true. Wisdom. And they're essential for living a good life. Right. And then we also talked last time a lot about um, the relationship between historically true and um, being true in the sense of wisdom. And something can be true in the sense of wisdom and not be historically true. Or... It can be true in both senses. You know, you can have a life that is... um, Well, most of us have lived moments in our lives that feel like we're playing out the story that we've heard. Um, A lot of times marriage feels like that. You feel like... And the ceremonies and and the rituals are kind of designed to reinforce the story that you are Prince Charming walking down the aisle. She is the beautiful snow-white princess walking down in white... (coughs) and you are taking her away from the good father you're taking her away from the castle you're taking her away from where she was before and um the community accepts that and then you um you know affirm that in front of everybody and then you walk out together That's very archetypal it's very part of the pattern of how stories are told and i'm sure we can go much deeper into the richness of the symbolism of marriage in our society and you know, all societies have, have ways of, of doing marriage and, and telling the story uh, that um, what's happening here is important. So, these um, so are true in the sense of wisdom. They're patterns for understanding the world. They're essential for a good life. It leads into my next point, is that um, archetypal stories can be told right. They can be told well. Uh, they can be told wrongly. And uh so this is where the name for this podcast comes which is um I think it's something like archetype versus propaganda. And I got this from this terminology from Jordan Peterson that um he was talking about how um well he's talking about his lectures and he shows up and he he thinks for about 10 minutes about what he's going to say. And then he just goes for it, and he talks for about an hour and a half and then answers questions for half an hour. And uh, so the question was put to him, how do you do it? How do you prepare in 10 minutes and then talk for an hour and a half? And it's always different and interesting. And part of the answer was, well, I've been studying this particular group of ideas for 50 years so I can talk about it confidently. Um, But the other part was that he said... um, It's interesting, and people come to listen to me because people want to hear the Logos. People want to hear the words spoken, but when he said Logos, it's like there's this concept of a living word that um, thoughts, thinking, and evolving, and there's something exciting happening on stage, and I'm kind of making it up as I go along because I'm, I'm rethinking these ideas. And he said the opposite of the Logos would be propaganda, where you already know exactly what you're going to say and you have it all prepared and it's a speech and you've been over it a million times and you stand up and you speak it and it kind of people know that what you're saying is true historically, academically, scientifically true, but it kind of falls flat and it doesn't catch anybody's interest and it's, it's dead. And, um, I don't think he directly applied this to archetypes, but, um, I think that it applies as well to archetypes that um, there's a way of telling a story where it's alive, and this is something that I've experimentally experienced with my kids. Um, we just start telling a story and it's fun, and then it takes on a life of its own and then it's like I can't just do this or that with the character that's not what that's not what Arthur would do that's not what Princess Pink would do. <clears throat> they have a life of their own, and I'm subservient to the story in some sense. And, and the story is living and breathing, and the kids would much rather listen to my stories than Adventures in Odyssey or, or any, uh, anything else. It's interesting to listen to a story that's evolving and growing and it's alive. Um, but we can tell stories because we think we know what the story should be, and then that like manhandles the story and twists it over into something which we're going to call propaganda, just to give you a small example of this, I was telling a sto- the the kids this story about um, this boy that lived in a golden castle uh, and then realized that his golden castle was shrinking and then he he found a way of escaping through going through the cellar, uh, through the darkness, and, and and it ends up being tree roots and, and he gets out and he's in the forest and he fights a dragon and he keeps coming back to the castle, but the castle gets smaller and smaller the stronger he gets. And anyways... Um, the main adversary in that story seemed to be the dragon, and so, and I thought I was telling my boys a story about being courageous and strong, and even if there's something terrifying out there like a dragon, you need to go and fight it, and so, you know, the story was just kind of evolving, and this tree became more and more significant, um, and there was this, this pool, and a lady's face in the pool that would speak to him as, as he slept, and, and she was really kind but kind of male- malevolent at the same time. Um, but, anyways, I was fixated on this dragon, and um, at a certain point, um, he went down into the bowels of the earth and he slew the dragon. He killed it, and then he rescued the princess, and they went back home. And the kids were like, Really? Like, just like that? Then the dragon fell into the lava and he was dead. Oh and it's like like i manhandled the story the dragon wasn't supposed to die <laughs> that's not that's not the story that was trying to be told and the kids stopped asking about the story they didn't really care what happened with the prince and the princess after that they didn't the world kind of fell apart um because i told the story wrong because the dragon wasn't supposed to die because he's got unfinished business with this tree um which didn't seem significant at, at the beginning but There's something archetypally significant about um, this tree that wouldn't let him go that um, he hasn't completely um, dealt with yet. So it's like when you're telling a true story, a story that is tapping into deeper ideas and deeper truths, you need to follow the logic of it. You need to follow the truth of it. Um, Otherwise, it becomes like propaganda. You know, I, I try to... I tried to make the story about this is the story of um, you know saint george and the dragon where a hero goes out kills a dragon gets the girl end of story that's not what the story was about you know so at some point if i want to keep telling that story i need to go back and fix it Uh, change the ending and and make it make it what is right so there's three reasons why um, we can tell a story wrong the first one is just as i mentioned it's not so easy to tell a story um, you can think you have the story right but at a certain point the dragon dies and the kids lose interest it, it's hard to tell a story right um, another thing that's really hard is that um, we can over intellectualize a story or uh, a message that we're telling people you know messages that we tell our children about life take on a, the form of a story whether we're u- using religious language or story language, you know, uh, at a certain point, the message comes out something like, you're going to grow up, you're going to get educated, you're going to meet a girl, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids, you know. Like, there's a story that we're telling, even if we're we're not communicating it in a straightforward way. But it's not so easy to tell the story. Um, sometimes we get so fixated on one or two key things that we miss the broader picture. We miss miss the flow of it. We miss the life of it. Or we can be influenced by uh, our religious bias or by our cultural bias. Um, We can have certain ideas that are so strong and so non-negotiable that they distort and warp the story. And so there's two... Yeah, so that's the second point. Sometimes archetypes don't fit our ideas about truth and reality. Uh, and so we we end up telling propaganda and not a true story. Um, so I recently did a podcast. I haven't released it yet. I'll probably release it before I release this podcast. But I did a, a podcast with an interview with uh, a woman who was raised in a very strong purity culture. So within Christianity, there are lots of subcultures and denominations. And one of the subcultures is a purity culture where it's like, purity is so important. That is like the most important thing. That is like held up on a huge pedestal that you need to be a virgin when you get married. But more than that, you need to, um, there's something that is called emotional purity, that um, it's bad to, well, it is bad to just, date and date and date and date and date and, you know, go through serial relationships whether you're sexually involved or not. And then after, like, dating 20 people for fun, um, because supposedly that's what our culture does, you know, it may or may not be true. There are certainly people that do that. Um, but the story is told that everybody in our society dates this way. And so Christians ought not date this way. You uh, should only fall in love once with your, your future mate, mm-hmm. with your future husband or wife. So there's this whole thing called the purity culture. Uh, there's a book written called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was popular when I was a teenager. And, um, there's, uh, ATI Accelerated Teaching Institute. Uh, there, there's a, a man named Bill Gothard who, um, kind of spearheaded a lot of teaching in the 60s that influenced a lot of a whole generation of adults, that gener- influenced a generation of kids. Um, and so there's this whole way of thinking about things over there. And um, the bottom line that, that came out through that interview was, and I've experienced this too in different ways, because um, my wife was raised in ATI and influenced by the same sorts of ideas. But the idea is that... Um, Basically, love has no place in finding a mate. It should be um, it should be maybe an intellectual exercise it should be based on religion it should be based on you know is he um, is he a good man that has uh, his financial world in order and is submits to authority and things like that uh, more than. You know, do you like him? And so now we're getting to the point in time when people that were raised in that, got married in that, are now reaping the fruits of that. And a lot of, um, a lot of the fruits are not good uh, because marriage works better. The story works a lot better if you marry for love. And, and certainly your parents should be involved to a certain extent. And certainly you should at a certain point ask, well, do you have a job? are you Prince Charming <laughs> or are you, are you Joe Charming? Like, are you a prince? Do you have a horse? Do you have a, a suit of armor? Do you like, can you actually provide for me? That should be part of it, but it shouldn't be the central part of it. And what a lot of women especially are finding is that they didn't pr- marry Prince Charming. They married Prince Ugly. Uh, they married Prince, I don't I don't care about you, you don't care about me, and, and five, ten years into it, we realize that there's nothing between us. Or um, sometimes you just marry a really terrible person, uh, and that's happened a lot to, um, to some people that, uh, that we know. So the story can happen. Like if the story is not told right, then kids are not guided Right. And then what happens when they hit those crucial times in life when they need to make a decision? Well, they're left without guidance. Um, So it's easy to critique my own camp. Something I'm going to try and do relatively faithfully is try and critique uh, the other camp, which is kind of the liberal... What am I going to call it? Radical feminism or... um, Maybe I'll just call it the liberal story because it's not fair to call it feminism because... Um, feminism means pro-women. And, um, well, for one thing, this story is anti-gender. So it's it's hard to call it feminism in my estimation. And also, I think we need to uphold feminism. I think that feminism is... Um, uh, well, something like 85% of all violent crimes are done against women. Um, and we need to... At, when a society starts to drift towards cruelty uh, It's always cruel towards women first. And so feminism is important because we need to protect humanity and, and the part of humanity that needs to be protected most is women. And the most important thing we need to say about women is that they're real humans too. They're real people too. Um, and I think that's an essential component of feminism is saying women are real people too. There's equality. Um, and the other part of that is saying they are real. They're different men and women are not exactly the same. They don't need to be the same. There's something different and better about women. Anyways, we could go down a rabbit trail talking about feminism. Got lots to say about that. But there's this story, kind of the liberal story, um, that is also driven by ideology. Not driven by religious ideology, but driven by ideas. And the ideas are something like um, there is no such thing as gender. But then paradoxically, um, all men play out the role of the evil father or else they play out the role of the fool or the incompetent father. And all women play out the role of the hero or they should. And um, the role of the mother uh, and the role of the princess are not roles that should be encouraged. Um, So that's kind kind of the liberal story. So, now that I've got everybody offended, I hope that you know the good conservative Christians are smarting a little bit and and probably the liberals are have a thing they would like to say to me and that 's fine you don 't have to agree with me. Uh, this is just kind of how I see things is that there are archetypal stories um, so we could get to the next question is can archetypes be changed? It feels to me that i 've had that i 've seen two di- at, i mean in broad strokes two different camps of people trying to change the story. people on the far left. Would like to say um, you know that there is no such thing as gender there are no such thing as archetypal stories or or the roles can be infinitely swapped back and forth if there are archetypal stories uh, and people over on the far right want to make the story so pretty and sparkly and and crystal clear that it doesn 't have any life anymore, and they want to take out essential components such as love such as young people being independent from their parents while they're on this quest um, to find love. Uh, You know, they want to have the good father and the good mother um, are there (laughs) when Prince Charming and uh, and the princess meet and fall in love. And that never happens in fairy tales. There's a reason it doesn't happen in fairy tales because there's nothing romantic about your father-in-law staring at you while you're trying to, you know court a girl or fall in love with her, whatever. Um, So archetypal stories can be told wrong. These key stories can be told wrong and that becomes propaganda. It becomes a story that is dead and lifeless and is enforced through power rather than told because it's fun and because it it makes your eyes light up and, and part of your brain activates and you're like, yeah, this is true. This makes sense. All right. So let's take a little break from... From the definitions here to have some story time. And uh, let's talk about uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And this is kind of the point that I was trying to get to is you know, if you can just think in front of yourself of a manger scene, and in my thinking, it's kind of one of those silhouettes uh, that you might see on the sidewalk. And there's a light behind, there's kind of a cutouts of you can see the baby, baby Jesus in a manger. And you can see, and most of the light is behind him, right, in the center. He's in the center. Off to his left is Mary. And Mary is kneeling, and she her eyes are directed straight at, at Jesus. And she's kind of probably praying, and, and her hands are held together, and she's looking at the baby. And then off to his right is Joseph. And Joseph has a staff, and he's standing and he's looking down at Mary and at the baby, so his eyes aren't specifically on the child. Well, maybe it's harder to see because he's further back, but he he's watching his family and then moving out from there, we have animals uh, that are also there. We have the typical cow and maybe a sheep or something, and then you have shepherds, uh, and they're perhaps outside of uh of the 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 crèche, the, the manger scene, the, the little shed that they're in. Um, so there's shepherds perhaps off to the left, and then there's wise men off to the right. So this is what we would typically see in a manger scene. If, if it's a smaller one, we might just see Mary, Jesus, and the baby. If it's a bigger one, we might see more elaborate details on the shepherds and on the wise men. So there's something... There's something clearly historically true about this picture. Um, And as I mentioned, the previous one is a evangelical as, you know, as a almost said fundamentalist Christian, (laughs) but I'm I'm not Um, in some ways I'm a fundamentalist in that. I believe in the fundamentals, but um, you know, as somebody that actually believes the story, I do believe that this happened historically, but there's also deep archetypal significance to this. And, That significance didn't really become apparent to me uh, until I had children of my own. And then, you know, I lived that story. Just real briefly, uh, my first child, um, we're in the north. Uh, We have kind of a health clinic, but it's not a full hospital. They don't have, well, it is a full hospital, but they don't have a surgeon. And so there's no C-section option. And so that made things very difficult for our first child. And uh, we had a difference of opinion with the doctor. Um, and things went south, uh, communications-wise, but also also health-wise. And we were sent out of town, um, but also sent out of town out of favor with, with one doctor that should have been referring us, but she kind of passive-aggressively gave us appointment for much later. And anyways, things... Didn't go well, Um, and it was a very traumatic event on all levels for us. And finally, we got to a big city and kind of forced our way into the back into the medical system because we were kind of shoved out by. It felt like we were kind of shoved out by this doctor that got personally offended or something. And uh, finally, we had the child, and it was a difficult labor after all that. And the baby was like two and a half weeks, three weeks overdue. It was crazy, but finally, we had our child. And, um, it, you know, the child was healthy. It, it, um, our son was very clearly overdue. The the skin was cracked and, um, bleeding in places and things like that from being overdue. But, but he was healthy and he was happy and we were happy. And, and, um, my most vivid memory of that whole time, like I barely remember the birth for good reason. I mean, it was it was traumatic. It was not a good birth, um, experience. And, but I remember, I remember taking pictures of him as a newborn and being so excited for my baby and just holding him being like, I'm a father, like just wow. And I remember going out of the hospital and going down the street after, you know, everything was settled down with the family. And I went down, And I found this little Korean place and, uh, they had a great deal on some sort of a pork noodle thing and I bought it and brought it back and my wife and I, and well, not our son, but you know, my wife and I enjoyed this, this food that wasn't hospital food and we had a son and it was just this golden moment of, yeah, you know, like it's right. It's good. We have a baby, you know, um, and there's this sense in which i felt like i was walking ancient paths and maybe i think that more in hindsight maybe i'm kind of making it up i don't know but there's something about that moment of like you know it was traumatic it was terrible we kind of felt like we had to struggle against forces that felt evil and malevolent to us i'm sure that people were, were doing the best they could and um you know, doing things as they thought they should. Um, But it felt to us like it was a dark time uh, when people weren't really on our side. And then, but we had fought through, we had won, we had our baby and, you know, I went out and I got food for us and I brought it back and and we enjoyed. Um, And there's something obviously profoundly human and profoundly ancient and rich about that moment of giving birth and then becoming a family and just that moment that glow of things are different things have changed we're a family now and me as a father the role of of getting sustenance for us uh, was very significant and meaningful um so you know when i look at a a manger scene that evokes different feelings in me now because I've experienced it. And um, so there's a sense in which, you know, Jesus really was born of human parents. That was true. But there's a sense in which this picture, this manger scene picture is like this perfection or this idyllic vision or this, this perfect picture of what that looks like. And many of us have experienced this in some way of having a child and becoming a family and um, taking up our role within that. And as we can kind of analyze this manger scene, and um, the different components are put together um, like from different books of the Bible. So there isn't one book of the Bible that has a whole manger scene. Matthew remembers it slightly different than Luke. Luke remembers most of the details, but Luke remembers it more from Mary's perspective. Matthew remembers it more from Joseph's perspective, uh, likely reflecting the sources that were used um, to write the book. Um, and so, moving outwards, um, in my mind, it's the the shepherds on the left and the and the magi on the right. You have, you know, the shepherds. They don't really have anything. To bring, other than the gift of presence, they like presence, uh, as in their presence. They come, they shout, they're excited, they're worshiping the child, they're thrilled about what has happened, about new life, about um, about the savior of the world that has come, and and they're just and and they come, they they warm Mary and Joseph's hearts. They um, let them know that uh, the community is is excited about them and is welcoming them. And then they leave and they go and they celebrate with other people and they go have a little party in the town and and tell other people. So that's the role of the shepherds. And they're outside, you know, this picture, but they're an important role. You know, we're excited about this child and that's part of of the picture. Um, And then on the right, there are the magi. And these are are the people coming to bring gifts and they are lavishing, um, you know, expensive gifts on the child. This is perhaps the extended family. This is perhaps, you know, godparents or, um, you know, close friends. Again, they're on the outside of the manger scene, but they come to give gifts. They come to adore the child. And then within, there are animals symbolizing, well, symbolizing animals. Um, You know, humans live with animals they always have and uh, there's it's normal to have a, a human habitation filled up with other humans with animals with um, whether they're domesticated animals or pets or whatever uh, so that's just part of the household perhaps the day there'd be a dog and a cat but back then there was a you know a cow and a sheep that were going to provide food for the family And then we get into the center of the story and we have um, Mary kneeling next to the child and uh, leaning in and and focused on the child. And you can kind of enter into the story of what it means to be a mother for the first time and and think about the trauma that she just went through of giving birth and and the horror of that, um, which you know is so deep it goes all the way back to Genesis three of um this is this is part of the curse of being human as a woman is giving birth like this is the 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 pit the 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 bottom the like the worst part of being human which comes from the brokenness of humanity is you know when you give birth it's painful and it's traumatic and even today it's dangerous you could die uh it's 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 hard but it's more than hard Uh, words fail me but through going through that there's this precious child that is born and so she's experiencing all that and she's unrealistically kneeling Uh, that's probably part of the unrealistic propaganda of the story that a woman wouldn't probably kneel right after giving birth but she's adoring the child looking at the child thinking about the child caring about the child that's her and then Joseph is there. He's standing. He's got a staff. And he's looking at the both of them. And he's also adoring the child. We can see in his posture that, um, you know, he's standing. He's He hasn't just given birth. Uh, he's got a staff. He's the one that got married to the inn, perhaps, Uh or, or into the shelter. He's the one that has made sure and has has looked over her as she was in this vulnerable place, and he's the one that's been protecting her. And he's the one that still has the staff. If anyone wants to come, if any animals want to come and um, devour his child while they're vulnerable, child and wife while they're vulnerable, while well, he's got his staff, he's going to protect them. Um, if the shepherds or the wise men overstep and get a little bit too boisterous inside of this little place of light, well, he might just just move them out of the way and tell them that it's time for Mary to rest now. Um, he's there, and his role is, is, you know, it's not as central as Mary's role. Mary is really the star of the show, but Joseph has his place too uh, as, you know, the father of the child, uh, stepfather in this case, but archetypally as the father of the child and as the one that protects and as the one that provides and as the one that... Um, that is also overcome with emotion as he thinks about how his world is different and how everything has changed. And his role also goes back to Genesis. Um, Genesis 1, 27-28 says, Let us make man in our image, uh, in the image of God. Uh, I'm going to read it now. (laughs) I thought I had it memorized. Let's see here, Genesis 1. 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So man is generic in in this verse. It can't be generic or specific. Um, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish, the birds, etc. And then he goes on to say uh, that he gives everything into their hands. So Genesis 1, 27, 28. Man and woman are both created in the image of God. They both have something of God that they image, and together they are mankind, Adam. Together they are humanity, and together they have been told, rule over the earth and subdue it. And so I think there's some of that in uh, the manger scene, that we have become man and woman. You know, we have become together, you know, there's something about a child that really s- takes the relationship to the next level literally um and there's a sense of ruling over you know now we're go- we have some dominion over at least the animals within this picture um and there's some part of the earth that we rule over also genesis 3 uh, after the fall and after the world becomes corrupted um there's work that is that are Adam already had work, but now the work becomes toilsome and difficult. And, and, um, you know, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Joseph isn't there anymore. And historically that's probably because, um, he worked really hard. He probably worked himself. Um, well, historically, uh, men had to get married later in life because they couldn't get married until they could provide for a wife. Um, for most of history, a man couldn't provide for a wife until he was in his mid twenties at least if not thirties, and then um, <coughs> so it made an age cap and also uh, the work was very, very difficult. Um, we kind of look at that as a privilege now to be able to work. Um, but for most of humanity, it was there was a heavy burden on Joseph's shoulders uh, of working hard enough to provide for this new child. But he bears it, uh, and he, you know, you, you can kind of see that on his shoulders in in the manger scene that he's he's carrying that he's going to work, um, he's going to be a carpenter, he's going to work in the fields, or he's going to do what he has to do to to provide for this family. Now, as we move along through the New Testament, um, Joseph is still there as you know the protector, and he gets them from point A to point B. But he kind of fades out of the story. And Mary kind of becomes far more central. She lives a lot longer, for one thing. And um, we get to see more about Mary's heart and what's going on than we do Joseph. And um, one really interesting verse is that there's this prophecy spoken over the baby Jesus that um, this child is appointed to to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. So, there's this prophecy that Mary's heart will be pierced by a sword. And um, this connects with what um, Jordan Peterson has repeated from I forget where some psychologist said that the good mother always fails. So, in the previous podcast, we talked about good mothers and good fathers, but how sometimes the good father can overprotect, and the good mother cannot can refuse to let go, and usually in, in fairy tales, archetypal stories, um, the good mother doesn't let go, the child is stolen away, or from a good father, the good father does not let go, the child wanders away, or, or runs away. It's very, very hard for a mother to let go, um, it's not just a simple matter of letting go, there's there's deep agony and pain associated with that. There's a sword that pierces their heart. And then if they don't let go, um, the child can't grow up. Uh, There's a necessity to that, which is why the good mother always fails. She fails to love him, to be there for him, to protect him, to to be that safe place for his whole life. And um, so this is where I think that uh, my own tradition, the Protestant tradition, hasn't done the story as well as, for example, Catholics and um, the older, the older Christianity that was there before the Catholic-Protestant split, because that split changed Catholicism as well in the Counter-Reformation. But there used to be this this whole mythology built up around Mary um, and really emphasizing her role and. Um, the tears of Mary being significant and, you know, I'll be the first to say that things got a little bit out of hand, um, and statues weeping supposedly and miracles happening. And, um, there were things from, from other places that seemed to get wrapped up in Mary. And there's a reason that Protestants protested against Mary because honestly, statues were becoming idols and, and pictures and icons Seem to be be used as idols instead of worshiping God. We're worshiping an object of stone, uh, which is clearly forbidden in uh, the Old Testament. But in our protesting away from that, I feel as though um, we've lost sight of um, of the story and about how um, the tears of Mary are powerful tears. The tears of the mother that gives all, that submits, that, that cares for her child, um, that submits to, um, to, the, well, I mean, to the Father's will, um, your will be done, be it, be it done to me as you have said, she says to God. Um, that's all precious and significant and, and powerful. And something that we haven't talked about yet is Jesus himself. And how, um, what it means to be a child, to have a child. And um, this is something that, uh, you know, about the time that I had my first child really reflected on that. And how, um, you know, how God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And humanity, you know, if you look at that Mary, Joseph, Jesus, there's three you know, and, and there's this powerful sense in which you have a couple, and that's more human. You, know, you can have a man, and that's a human. You can have a woman, that's human. But when you have the two together, now we're able to image God, because God, is, um, God created humanity in, the Im- in his own image, male and female he made them. And so when you have male and female together, you have the image of God more completely, you have femininity and masculinity together in harmony, hopefully in harmony, sometimes in in tension. But, you know, there, there's doing life together. And then when there's a child added to that, now you have a trinity and now they're bound together through blood. And now, you know, that's there's something powerful there that I can't even completely enunciate what it is, but it's, it's changed. It's good. Um, and another aspect of the child, you know, the holy child, the sacred child is, and here, like, remember, we're talking on two levels that Jesus is, he really did exist, but he also symbolized something. He's also an archetype. So the child is a gift from God. The child is, um, the deliverer because, um, Well, let me just read through all this. The child symbolizes eternal life. The child symbolizes a truth speaker who reveals hearts. Um, And he's going to undergo a quest to become the savior of the world and become a hero. So all these things were completely true of Jesus, but these things are also true in a sense of all of our children, or at least this is the archetypal picture of what a baby is. This idea of eternal life, you know, we all know that we're going to die. And, um, there was this movie that really, like, kind of clued me into this, uh, as a young, you know, as, like, in my 20s or something. There's this movie, it's, it's kind of a, I watched it at a friend's house, it's not a movie I would have picked because it was rated R, with good reason. Uh, the movie is Sons of Men. And, uh, the premise of the movie, I think it was Russell Crowe that starred in it, um, is that every woman in the world became infertile like instantly, like overnight uh, or or over a a span of like five years or something and nobody knew why. But now humanity was aging and there were no babies being born. And so, you know, everybody that's alive was going to live just as long as they were before. But the whole world was falling into mass anarchy and it was like apocalyptic and the end of the world because people were like... Like, we're dying. Like, we're all going to die. Humanity is going to end. It, like, so it doesn't matter what we do, you know, when people were just rioting in the streets and destroying stuff. And, and you could see the plausibility of it. Um, because if you, take, if you take children out of the equation, you know, in 70 years, this wonderful society and, and everything that we have accomplished in our houses and our, our politics and our nations, it's all going to disappear children are are in eternal life on earth. They are our sense of immortality. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is the savior of the world and gives us eternal life spiritually. But when we have a child physically, that means that our genes will continue. That means that our family traditions will continue. That means that our stories will continue. That means that there's going to be part of us that's going to go on. And Of course, uh, in a sense, it's more important to have eternal life for me personally than it is for me to have a son. I I guess there is a sense in which that's more important. But we can't devalue the importance of um, our children moving on and and having the next generation and having life in the future. Um, So anyways, I don't know if I can communicate how deeply that hit me, but after I watched that movie, I wrote a blog post way back in my previous blog. And I wrote a poem at the end of that. I wrote, In death dying, a race is doomed. In children laughing, a race renewed. In age decaying, flame grows dim. In youth renewing, fire burns within. A cherished spark, a fragile dream. The one from two, enduring stream. It is life, thou. In you is life, thou favored one, life-giving woman, redeeming son. So that is um, kind of part of the archetypal significance of, of the manger scene that I see. Just it's telling this central story of life and birth and family and eternal life and um, new generations coming. Oh, and I could also say, um, you know, we hope that our children will be um, deliverers. They will deliver us. And in the ancient world, they literally would. You know, you would hope that your kids would would take over the farm so that when you get to be 60 or 70 and, and can't work because you've been working hard all your life and your joints are all seized up, that your son will, will take care of you in your old age. He will literally deliver you. <clears throat> but also we hope that in all times, that, that the next generation will be heroes and be conquerors and will march out there and do the hard things and do the good things um, to deliver the human race from the evil and malevolence that are always um, creeping up. So we hope that our children will be deliverers. We hope that they will be truth speakers, um, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed through our children, uh, that they'll be able to speak the truth. And that they will be able to um, to go on a hero's quest, you know, as Jesus did. Though he was the Son of God, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Uh, he grew in stature and grew in favor um, with man and with God. It says in in one of the passages that you know Jesus had this journey, and then he had this identity. He his His adult ministry began with an identity identity crisis where he was tempted and Satan kept saying, if you are the son of God, if you are. And his identity was questioned and challenged and he had to overcome that and he had to figure out who he is and figure out what his role is in the world and that he had to do it and be courageous and be sacrificial. And we hope that our children will be those things. And um, this is... In many ways, this is the archetypal story that is at the center of humanity. Um, This is what it means to be a human, is to have some role in this story. This is the flaming center. Um, And that's why it connects with us. And that's why people put up major scenes, even if they're not Christians, and why um, Christians will put up major scenes. And there's something significant there that, uh, you know, it even doesn't completely fit with the biblical accounts. You have to take some from Matthew, you have to take some from Luke. Uh, The Magi actually showed up when Jesus was about three, but we tend to put them into the manger scene anyways um, because this this picture itself is so powerful. So I want to talk now briefly. I was planning to spend a lot of time on this, but I think we'll just briefly talk about how the story can be told wrong. And so there's this poem that uh, my sister-in-law sent me, uh, written by Caitlin Hardy Shetler on Facebook here. Um, She says, sometimes I wonder if Mary breastfed Jesus, if she cried out when he bit her, or if she sobbed when he would not latch. And sometimes I wonder if this is all too vulgar to ask in a church full of men without milk stains on their shirts or coconut oil on their breasts, preaching from pulpits off limits to the mother of God. But then I think of feeding Jesus, birthing Jesus, the expulsion of blood and smell of sweat and salt of mother's tears onto the soft head of the salt of the earth, feeling lonely and tired and hungry, annoyed, overwhelmed, loving. And I think if the vulgarity of birth is not honestly preached by men who carry power, but not burden, who carry privilege, but not labor, who carry authority, but not submission, then it should not be preached at all because the real scandal of the birth of God lies in the cracked nipples of a 14 year old and not in the sermons of ministers who say women are too delicate to lead so there's you know there there's a there's a critique of a certain way of doing church woven into this but I think what I really what I really resonate with in that is that we san we over sanitize the birth story so much you know there's that line that always makes my wife and I smile um no crying he makes you know all way in a manger uh no crib for a bed the little lord jesus lay down his sweet sweet head um the stars in the sky uh shone down where he lay the little lord jesus asleep in the hay anyway somewhere we get to no crying he makes <laughs> i forget which part of the song but it's like seriously um and then there's another song Silent Night Holy Night you know all is calm all is nigh um like it, it's it's too perfect it's too perfect like the real story is um that a young girl had this traumatic birth that she was not expecting uh she was terrified thinking that she's going to be expelled from the community <laughs> and lose her her fiance, which is her only lease on a future life, um, that is not disastrous. Uh, and fortunately he decides to marry her anyways, but it's, a, uh, it's, yeah. And then, and then they have this traumatic journey that they have to take while she's nine months pregnant and then she gives birth. Um, and, um, it's hard. It's not, it, it, it wasn't this, this neat and, and pretty picture. And so that is one way that this fundamental story can be told wrong. It's just it's too pretty and sterile and too... um, Yeah, it's probably accurate to say too masculine. Um, There is a masculinity and a femininity to the human race, and and, um, we need to honor both. We need need to honor the richness of the story. And this is Mary's story. This is Mary's time to shine. It's not Joseph's time to shine. And so... um, you know, the right sometimes gets the story wrong. I think the left sometimes gets the story wrong too. And it probably doesn't take a lot of creativity or a lot of thinking to to think how the left could get the story wrong uh, about this man and woman with a child uh, who are at the center Um, and how the focus is on the child and um, there are roles that are played. And the roles are gender-specific, is uh, seems to be the rub for our day and age. So I think as I'm moving up pretty close to one hour, that I'm not going to have enough time to talk about that. So we'll talk about that next time about... Um, well, I guess it'll just be a part two of Propaganda versus Archetype. And we'll talk a bit about why people would want to um, distort the story and how they do... Um, And uh, we'll just continue these thoughts there.